This week's episode is a little different than what you've come to expect from Already Gone. First, we are tackling the oldest case we've ever looked at on the podcast, a story that goes back nine decades, all the way to the late 1930s. Second, this case cannot be resolved through traditional detective work. It will take science or an act of God to close the case, especially if the prevailing theories are true. Let's go back to 1937, 82 years ago. Michigan is celebrating 100 years of statehood. World War I is long over, and World War II, well, it really hasn't kicked off yet. We are at the tail end of the Great Depression. On the national front, Shirley Temple and Clark Gable are the biggest box office draws. The United States is reeling from two tragedies that unfolded earlier in the year. First, the explosion of the Hindenburg Dirigible. Back in May of 1937, killing 35 people, there was also the July 1937 disappearance of aviators Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan as Earhart attempted to be the first female pilot to circumnavigate the globe. On the financial front, 1937 was quite different from today. You could get a new home for only $4,100 and a new car like the Oldsmobile driven by 24-year-old Thomas Lorimer, that would set you back $920. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We will come back to young Mr. Lorimer and his brand new Oldsmobile in a moment. In 1937, the little city of Melvindale was just four years old. Officially, I mean. The unincorporated village had been there for decades. According to Wikipedia, the village of Melvindale incorporated into a city back in 1933. And Melvindale is not a big place. It measures just under three square miles and sits directly between the city of Detroit to the east and the city of Dearborn to the west. Melvindale is named for one of the original developers, a Melvin Wilkinson. And Melvindale was created to provide housing for people working at the Ford Motor Company River Rouge Complex. That factory, when it opened in 1928, was the largest integrated factory in the world. So Melvindale is a small community, but it's bustling. Oakwood Boulevard cuts the city neatly in two and served as one of the main drags. Dick's Road, West Outer Drive, and Schaefer Highway are the other major thoroughfares. And it was in the wee hours of October 15th, 1937, that an unlikely trio of locals stepped out of the Hollywood Cafe on Oakwood Boulevard, got into a car, and drove off into oblivion. So come with me to a chilly October night 82 years ago when Margaret Redden, Artie Maybe, and Thomas Lorimer climbed into Lorimer's car and drove away never to be seen again. On Thursday, October 14th, 24-year-old Thomas Lorimer, a married father with a young daughter, met up with a friend at the Hollywood Cafe on Oakwood Boulevard for a drink. Meanwhile, at a nearby table, two women, one who knew Lorimer casually, they were also at the Hollywood enjoying a drink and catching up. 35-year-old Margaret Redden, a secretary who had recently separated from her husband, was enjoying a drink with her friend, 
42-year-old Artie Maybe. Redden was staying at the Maybe home that week as Artie's husband, Sylvester Maybe, was out of town on a hunting trip. Redden's boss, T.A. Bollinger. Bollinger owned the business next to the Hollywood Cafe, and he stopped in at the Maybe home late Thursday afternoon to ask Redden if she would please open the business the next day. Bollinger was planning to go hunting early Friday morning, and he wanted to be sure the business opened for his employees. Redden agreed and promised that she would open the shop at 9 a.m. on Friday, business as usual. Margaret and Artie departed from the Maybe home in Artie's car, intending to visit the home of a mutual friend for a couple of hours. The pair would not arrive at the cafe on Oakwood Boulevard until after 11 p.m. Now that you've had a quick introduction to the three main players of our story, a group that will come to be known as the Melvindale Trio, let me give you a quick rundown. We have two women. One is 42-year-old Artie Maybe, that's A-R-T-I-E, M-A-B-I-E, Artie Maybe, and she is the wife of Sylvester Maybe. Then we have her friend, 35-year-old Margaret Redden, estranged wife of James Redden, whom Margaret married back in 1925. Margaret and Artie became friends in the late 1920s when Margaret worked as the secretary to Sylvester Maybe, who at the time was the Melvindale city clerk. Margaret now works in the office of businessman T.A. Bollinger. Bollinger is the person who stopped by the Maybe home to ask Margaret if she would open the shop for him in the morning because he was going hunting. So let's assume that he knew Margaret was staying at the Maybe home while Sylvester was out of town. Artie Maybe. Artie was home alone that week. Her husband was off on a hunting trip. And another interesting point about Artie, she wore dentures. And earlier that week, she had dropped them off for repair. And she had a plan to pick up the dental plate, which gave her upper teeth, on Friday afternoon. Then there is Thomas Lorimer. He's 24 years old. He's employed at the American Malt Company which in the 1930s was located at 125 South Dix in Detroit, right by the Rouge River. Lorimer's father was a foreman at American Malt. And if you're wondering, yes, it's malt as in beer. They were in the business of processing barley, and American Malt shipped their product to 11 states. Now, Thomas Lorimer was born in Scotland, lived in Canada for several years, And when his parents moved to the Detroit area for work, he moved with them, bringing his wife Evelyn with him. Thomas and Evelyn had a young daughter, Shirley Ann, who was almost three years old in October of 1937. James, his wife, and their young daughter lived with his parents in a house on Flint Street in Melvindale. So, now that we've gotten acquainted with the main players, Margaret, Artie, and James Lorimer, Let's get back to what was happening with them on October 14th. So after Mr. Bollinger stopped in to talk with Margaret Redden, Artie and Margaret left to visit a friend, Lucille Broadus. Lucille lived on Henry Street, about a mile away from the Maybe home. Artie will tell Lucille that she wants to go out Friday night, but not before she's retrieved her false teeth from the dentist. 
Lucille will later tell police that both women seemed fine. Nothing out of the ordinary. But she does mention that Margaret was sort of sad that night, that she was unhappy about what appeared to be the end of her marriage. And by 11 p.m., all three of our players are at the Hollywood Cafe. Lorimer met a male friend there for a beer, while Artie and Margaret are also in the cafe having a drink. And it's safe to say that all three of them consumed one or more alcoholic beverages that evening. And while the name Hollywood Cafe conjures up images of a diner or a restaurant, it appears that Hollywood Cafe was a tavern or a night spot located in the center of Melvindale. It's just after 1 a.m. when Thomas Lorimer's male companion heads out, leaving Lorimer alone at the cafe. The young father turns to Margaret and Artie, striking up a conversation. You see, Lorimer knows Margaret Redden because the office where she works is the same location where Lorimer goes to make payments on his brand new 1937 Oldsmobile, a car that he purchased in September, just five weeks earlier. So it's like 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning when things start to get weird. Not full-blown weird, which is where we're headed, but it's still pretty weird nonetheless. The three of them, 24-year-old Thomas and the two women, Margaret and Artie, leave the cafe and they get into Lorimer's car and drive off. They're gone some length of time. News reports on this are conflicting. Some say they were gone 45 minutes. Others reports will say they were gone for two hours. What everybody agrees on is that the trio left the cafe for an unknown destination in Lorimer's vehicle and returned to the closed cafe about 3 a.m. When they returned to the cafe, Artie, the oldest of the three, she exits Lorimer's Oldsmobile from the passenger side and briefly returns to her own car, where she retrieves her hat. Now remember, she and Margaret left the maybe home in Artie's car hours earlier. First, they visited with Lucille Broadus. Then they went over to the Hollywood for a drink or two. Artie gets her hat, and then she gets back in Lorimer's car, and the three of them drive away. So, you're probably wondering how we know this. Well, that's easy, because just before 3 a.m., two of Melvindale's finest roll up on Lorimer's vehicle outside of the Hollywood Cafe and detain them. Melvindale police officers Harry Bringelson and Leonard Anderson approach the vehicle and recognize the occupants. Margaret, she was living in the city of Detroit at this point, and she had a house on Lansing Street. Lorimer lived on Flint Street in Melvindale with his wife, daughter, and parents. And Artie maybe was known to officers because of her husband's role in the community as city clerk. So the officers check in on this trio who's in the middle of downtown in the middle of the night on a weeknight. And when the officers determine that everybody's okay, they're just out very late, they release them. They hear maybe say, let's go to Lorimer and Redden, and they watch the Oldsmobile drive up Oakland Boulevard toward the city of Dearborn, and it will never be seen again. When 9 a.m. rolls around on Friday, T.A. Bollinger had he still been in town, would have been concerned to see that the office is not open for business, even though Margaret Redden, a reliable employee, promised him she would take care of it. Now, the other employees don't mind. 
They just assume they've got a long weekend because the boss went hunting. Artie maybe isn't missed because she doesn't have any children at home. She doesn't have a job to report to, and her husband is away on a hunting trip. Now, there's no record of how the Lorimer family reacted. Remember, Thomas lived with his parents, his wife, and his daughter in a Tudor-inspired home on Flint Street in Melvindale, a location that is today just one block away from what is now the Melvindale Municipal Complex, which houses the Melvindale Police. Unlike the American Malt Company at 125 South Dix, the Lorimer home, it's still there. So my first thought, because the trio left together, is that Lorimer must have offered the women a ride home. The house that Artie shared with her husband was on Palmer Street, on the other side of Oakwood Boulevard, about half a mile from the Lorimer home. And remember, Redden planned to spend the night at Artie's house. She was estranged from her husband. So it makes sense to me that Lorimer would offer to drive them home because it's late, they were drinking. Now, the maybe home was very similar in style to the Lorimer home. It was long and it was narrow and it was a year newer than the Lorimer home. And the house on Palmer is also still there. It was built almost 100 years ago. I think that's pretty cool. But anyway, I'm thinking that Lorimer offered to drive the two women home because maybe they drank too much and it's the middle of the night. Except it's not Lorimer driving the car. Margaret Redden was driving. When the two officers approached Lorimer's Oldsmobile in front of the Hollywood Cafe around 3 a.m., they found Redden behind the wheel of the car. Lorimer is sitting next to her, and Artie Maybe is sitting on the passenger side. And while the officers would describe Lorimer as intoxicated, according to a Detroit Free Press story from February of 1942, the officers said that the women appeared, quote, sober but gay. So let's talk about this driving situation. Lorimer was so proud of his car. He wouldn't let anybody drive it, not his father, not his wife, nobody's driving his new car. And he'd only had it for a couple of weeks. So when his family learns that Margaret Redden was driving, they're concerned. Both him being drunk and him allowing someone who was basically a stranger to drive his car, totally out of character for him. And remember, The two police officers, Bringleson and Anderson, they watched the Melvindale trio drive north on Oakwood Boulevard, disappearing into early morning fog. And the officers didn't know when they had this interaction with them that they were going to be part of history, part of the folklore of Melvindale, part of a story that people are going to tell and retell for more than 80 years. In fact, It's likely that when they drove away that the officers gave them much thought at all. They probably figured they were headed to their homes, and maybe that was the plan. Maybe they were headed for home, but none of them made it home. It wouldn't be until Sunday that the alarm was raised that they were missing, but when the alarm was finally raised, law enforcement and the community sprang into action. One of the first things done was to drag the river. Because Melvindale is just south of the Rouge River, it's possible that Redden drove the car up Oakwood Boulevard, missed the turnoff for Lorimer Street, and continued up the road into the water. Remember, it's a foggy night, 
And we're pretty sure they've been drinking. They've been at this tavern for hours. But on Monday, the riverbanks are checked, but they don't see crushed grass or scrapes or divots or other signs that a vehicle crossed the area and plunged into the river. They check bridges and abutments. They're looking for any sign that a car could have hit something on its way into the water. Going back to that February 1942 story in the Detroit Free Press, the river was searched multiple times. Melvindale Police, Dearborn Police, Detroit Police, the Michigan State Police. And remember how Lorimer had just bought the Oldsmobile? The insurance company wanted either their money or their car. So they also arranged for the river to be searched, dragged. So that's five separate times the river was checked in the weeks following their disappearance. The river they're searching is the Rouge River. Now, the Detroit River is another option. So Detroit police drag the river from Woodward Avenue south to Wyandotte, and the U.S. Coast Guard will step in to assist them in this search. Meanwhile, they've got planes going up to comb the area for any sign of the car or the missing people. Volunteers are searching on foot, and they're searching through woods and fields. And it's hard to imagine that this very industrial part of Detroit is rural. But in the late 1930s, there were still many undeveloped acres in Melvindale, in Detroit, and in Dearborn. Despite the searches, and despite the generous $500 cash reward that Sylvester maybe offered for information about his wife, they found nothing. Not a single clue was turned up. Because Margaret Redden lived alone and had been staying at the maybe home, there was no one to verify what she may have taken with her when she left on Thursday. Sylvester maybe, he searched his house. He checked his wife's closet and her jewelry chest, but nothing was missing. He found her wristwatch right where she left it at the house. And don't forget Artie's dentures, the upper plate that was in for repair. She never returned to claim her teeth. I don't think anybody's leaving town without their teeth. Now, the Lorimer family reported that none of Thomas's things were missing. He took with him only what he left the house with that evening. He had no money with him. And the week that he disappeared, he turned his paycheck over to his wife. Now, this is a normal thing for Lorimer to do, to turn his wages over to his wife and keep a small allowance for himself. Evelyn Lorimer was so upset about the disappearance of her husband that she went to her bed with grief. She couldn't function. She just took to her bed. And their little daughter, Shirley Ann, she really wanted her dad to come home. She missed him terribly. The only thing that she wanted for Christmas was for her daddy to come home. Now, there are people who think that the three of them took off, that they hopped into the new Oldsmobile and headed out west to start fresh. The insurance company responsible for Lorimer's Oldsmobile, they looked into this. And a tip came in that a car with matching the description of Lorimer's car with two women in it was spotted in Duluth, Minnesota, and they ran that lead down and it didn't go anywhere. Now, the thought that they took off together like some unlikely threesome, it doesn't make sense. They had no money, no personal items, and Artie isn't leaving without her teeth. So the theory seemed to be, at the time, that the trio, together for reasons unknown, accidentally drove Lorimer's shiny new car into the river, and they were gone. 
And if that was the case, why didn't searches of the river, both the Detroit River and the Rouge River, reveal the car and its occupants? Locals were not buying the story that the car was in the river. They were pretty convinced that something awful happened. And, as so often occurs in these cases where there are mysterious elements, the rumor mill starts churning. Even in the late 1930s, people talk. And word got around. Stories were whispered. Horrible stories about illicit activities and a triple murder. Word on the street in Melvindale is that they were dead. They were murdered. Gunned down in cold blood. Maybe by a jealous husband. Maybe Margaret's husband James caught the three of them out and sought revenge. And this was a charge that James Red denied. Or maybe they got involved with some unsavory characters and were killed because they saw or heard the wrong thing that Friday morning. Whatever the reason, the three of them were missing and people went searching for them. As listeners of this podcast, I know you enjoy true crime stories that evoke curiosity and emotion. Sometimes you want TV, not a podcast. So I'm recommending a new type of documentary streaming service called Magellan TV. Founded by filmmakers, Magellan TV's team of producers and curators created a collection of premium ad-free content, diving into diverse subjects and interests like history, science, space, nature, and of course, true crime. With over 1,500 documentary movies, series, and executive playlists, and new content arriving regularly, I'll never run out of things to watch. While looking through the Magellan TV app, I immediately found a documentary that piqued my interest, Parachute Murder Plot. This documentary tells the story of Victoria Cellier, who jumped out of an airplane at 4,000 feet, something she'd done over 2,000 times before, but this time was different. Her parachute didn't open, and she came crashing down to the ground. Victoria survived, and soon found out someone had tried to kill her for the second time. I won't spoil the story for you, you'll have to watch for yourself. This is just one of the many unique titles I found. Listeners, join me in watching documentaries anywhere, anytime by starting your two-month free trial of Magellan TV. Go to MagellanTV.com slash gone to take advantage of their 1,500 documentary movies, series, and executive playlists. That's MagellanTV.com slash gone for two months free. Don't miss this opportunity to discover new documentaries and true crime content that I know we've all been looking for. In 1938, probably seven or eight months after they went missing, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office took control of the case, and they pointed the finger at the Melvindale Police Chief, a man named Ermel Pitt. They insinuated that he had somehow bungled the investigation, and the person or persons behind a triple homicide were walking the streets, and people were not safe. So we've got new investigators looking at the case, and they learn of a lead that seemed promising, a lead that came from an unlikely place, Arkansas. So two Michigan State troopers and one Detroit detective headed south to question a death row inmate named Joe Anderson. Anderson was also known as Smokey Joe. Somehow, 
it seemed like there was a connection between Smokey Joe and Margaret Redden, maybe through her job at the insurance agency. And there was word that Anderson was in the Detroit area during October of 1937. Smokey Joe had a story, and the Michigan investigators were interested in hearing it. When Smokey Joe was first arrested in Arkansas, investigators learned that Joe Anderson, aka Smokey Joe, was not Smokey Joe at all. His real name was Buford Goad. Goad was born the son of a prominent Arkansas grocer, and he'd opted for a life of crime. And Buford chose a pseudonym to protect his well known and well regarded family from shame. In late August of 1938, Goad, aka Smokey Joe, along with his wife Lucille and several others, robbed a grocery store in Arkansas, killing the shopkeeper in the process. And this would be the crime that brought him down. While in prison awaiting his execution, he said he wanted to come clean about crimes in Michigan and Indiana, places he'd been in 1937. He confessed to one murder in Indiana where he killed a cab driver, and then he confessed to the murder of Detroit motorist Robert Moulet. He had no information for them about the Melvindale trio. For all of their criticism of how Melvindale police handled the case, these investigators returned to Michigan empty-handed. Buford Goad was executed by electric chair in March of 1939 at the Tucker Prison Farm in Tucker, Arkansas. The next lead in the case came in the late 1940s. According to a February 1948 story in the Owasso Argus Press newspaper, human remains, just bones really, were uncovered as workers excavated a site in Dearborn that would later become a Ford Motor Company building. From the article, quote, A steam shovel uncovered three bones last Friday, but Dr. French, the county coroner, he said the operator, William Seymour, carried the bones with him for a few days before reporting his find to authorities. William Seymour carried the bones around with him for a few days. We have another puzzling facet to this mystery. Who does that? Who finds human bones and carries them around? Sadly, the bones were not linked back to the Melvindale Trio. I do wonder what they could do from a forensic standpoint in the 1940s when analyzing bones. Listeners, there hasn't been any movement in this case in decades. In fact, I called the city of Melvindale looking to submit a Freedom of Information Act request for the files in the case, and I was told the files no longer exist. Just like Margaret, Thomas, and Artie, they are lost. In order to create this episode, I relied heavily on news coverage in the Detroit News and Free Press from the 30s and 40s. It is the only contemporary documentation that remains of the case. On October 17, 2012, to mark the 75th anniversary of the Melvindale Trio, the News Herald newspaper did a feature on the case. I will provide a link to their coverage on our website. In August of 1963, Detroit Free Press staff writer Ralph Nelson wrote about the trio. He offers a theory that I think makes the most sense. He says, and I quote, The best theory, according to police, 
is that the car hurtled off a fog-bound curve on Schaefer Road and sank swiftly in the silt on the bottom of the Rouge River. The first freighter to edge its way along the river pushed the car deeper into the mud. The river was dragged by police agencies several times. The Army engineers even lent a hand. But the car and its passengers are still listed among the missing. But listeners, why were they on Schaefer Road at all? Where were they headed? Where were they in the 40 to 90 minutes after they left Hollywood Cafe and before they were seen by the two Melvindale officers? Could that unaccounted for time explain why they were on Schaefer Road? In my work with the Missing in Michigan organization, I learned that both the Rouge and the Detroit Rivers are checked every couple of years. Agencies like the Coast Guard, the Detroit Police Dive Team, and the Michigan State Police have searched these waterways literally dozens of times over the last nine decades. But if Ralph Nelson's hypothesis is true, that they went into the water in the small hours of the morning and the first freighter to come through pushed the car down into the riverbed, Lorimer's beloved Oldsmobile containing three passengers could have been pressed deep into the murky bottom of the Rouge River, never to surface again. Shirley Lorimer, the little girl who wanted so much for her father to return home, was raised by her grandparents as her grief-stricken mother returned to Canada. As the youngest player in this story, Shirley is the only one who might still have a connection to the case. But alas, Shirley passed away 50-some years ago when she was still in her 30s. I could not determine if Shirley Ann Lorimer ever married or had a family. If you have information on the Melvindale Trio, you can call the Melvindale Police, but as I mentioned earlier, they no longer have a file on the case, so send me a note instead, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can also talk about the case in our Facebook group or find us on Twitter at alreadygonepod. Be sure to support the show by checking out our sponsor, Magellan TV. If you haven't yet reviewed the show, please take time to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcatcher. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.